This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. This is Beth Silvers. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. so happy that you're joining us for a new episode. Today, we're going to talk about immigration. News outlets are declaring this the immigration election. We can see that many of our political leaders would like for that to be true. We want to get focused today on what we're actually talking about. What are we trying to do at the southern border and how can we do it? And we hope that this conversation will add something new to the discussions you're hearing everywhere about Texas and the courts and the razor wire and the buses. And then outside of politics, we're going to talk about scruffy hospitality, what it means to have people over without needing to put a whole Martha Stewart worthy event together. That topic feels a little bit more related to immigration to me than I expected when we were in the planning process, Sarah. So everything today is about how do we welcome people in and do it in ways that are manageable and healthy and good for everyone. Before we get started, we wanted to talk about our democracy in America. I'm going to call it a reading group, Beth. How do you feel about that? We're just going to read along group. I like it. Okay, so we're going to read it slowly because it's a beast. There's a lot in there. It's not something you want to just like plow through in a month. Alexis de Tocqueville's seminal text on American democracy, democracy in America. So we've all started reading. Beth and I are going to discuss the first part at the end of February on our premium channels. So you're absolutely welcome to read along. But if you want to hear our conversation of Democracy in America, you're going to want to join us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. Now, because this is slow, and as we roll through this book, we might come up with some ideas, or some of you might come up with ideas. This could expand. We could have a study guide. We could have some interactive elements. We don't know, guys. The world is our oyster, okay, as we work our way through Democracy in America. And this is not to be confused with our actual book club. We partner with Lisa from The Bookshelf in Irvington, Virginia, to do boxes, That book club goes on semesters, and this semester we're reading The Big Break and Her Country. We're talking about industry towns. We're going to have such cool conversations to share with you about both of those books. We're still doing those and having our premium events surrounding the books in the book boxes as well. Content for both of those are available to our premium members. So we just wanted to give some more clarity and information to our book club and our read-along of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Next up, let's spend a minute thinking about the U.S.-Mexico border. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Sarah, one of our listeners, Sarah B., I'll call her, put a question to us about immigration that she prefaced as like, maybe this is a dumb question. And as usual, when someone says, maybe this is a dumb question, they're usually asking the smartest question. And I think that's what happened here. She asked, like, what do people mean when they say the southern border is not secure? What are we trying to do here? Do we want no one crossing or we just want it more secure than it is? Like, what is the goal? And so I thought that was a great place to start. And also, just what are we even talking about when we say the southern border? As I started learning more about this razor wire conflict between Texas and the federal government, it really focused my attention on the fact that most of the border that we're talking about with Texas is in the river. It's in the Rio Grande. It's not like a border on land. And that just sort of changes your perception when you think about building a wall or whatever solution we might be discussing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think her question is not only good, but prescient because it's going to be the issue of the election as every cover story from The Atlantic to The Economist to The New York Times will tell you right now. Um, And I think that's the hard part to hold with immigration is we have a very, very hot political topic, especially on the right. I think that they figured out, well, we lost abortion as a way to make people afraid and get voters motivated. So we're just going to have to cling to immigration. We learned this week that Donald Trump killed the bipartisan immigration bill because he wants it to be an issue during the election. So we have to hold sort of like the political calculus with regards to immigration. Then I think what you named is so true. We have the the reality on the ground that most people don't really think about in their day-to-day lives. You know, you'll get immigration as a top issue in the New Hampshire primary. Friends, why is the southern border on your mind? Like, and then uh, this reality that, like, what is it like for the border towns? What does this really mean? What does it mean for the people crossing the border? There's just a lot of pragmatic reality that I think sits below the surface of this very hot political topic we talk about all the time. One of the smartest things that I read this week was that immigration is really salient for Republicans right now because the Trump presidency basically radicalized a lot of Democrats around immigration. And I think that's probably true for me in a sense. When families were being separated at the border, it put me in such an emotional place that I could hardly see anything else. It's hard for me even now to say, like, there is a problem at the border because there's a pull in me 
to so empathize with the people trying to cross the border and to feel so guilty for some of the cruelty that we've done in trying to manage that border. And I'm trying to recalibrate because I see that the flow of people coming in as it has increased for a huge variety of reasons is not good for those people or for the border communities. But again, that's a really interesting political versus pragmatic reality when we talk about immigration. Because absolutely, I mean, I stepped foot in Mitch McConnell's office for the first time over the separation of children at the border. It was a heinous, despicable act. And also, President Obama arrested and removed more undocumented immigrants during his presidency than Donald Trump. They called him the deporter-in-chief for a reason. So it's like there's this pragmatic reality at the border where you have a Democratic president who was deporting way more people than Donald Trump who radicalized and really changed the conversation in a way that further obscured what was really going on. So the what are we trying to do? It was helpful for me to just think about this is like a little under 2,000 miles of land, and it's mostly privately owned. It spans four states, crosses almost every kind of terrain. It's really interesting, like desert, mountainous, plain, like the border crosses almost every kind of terrain, Most of it is the Rio Grande River, all of this pursuant to a treaty that we have with Mexico. And we do have fencing on about a third of it. A little over a third of it is fenced. And then there are vehicle barriers in some of the more remote areas. And then we have virtually fenced areas where we've got towers and cameras and radars. And I didn't know this, but they use these aircraft that are kind of like blimps to monitor the border so that agents can be deployed and respond. And we've talked on the show before about how most of our border enforcement approach was driven by this sense that mostly men were coming from Mexico for work in the United States. And then that really shifted as more people started to come from Central and South America seeking asylum. And now, because more air travel happens from countries all over the world, like the development of airports in third world countries has allowed more people from everywhere to fly into countries like Ecuador that have very lax visa requirements and make the journey. So so we see more people coming from China, from parts of Africa. So the current situation has changed in part because transportation has changed throughout the world. Social media has made it easier for people to connect. We do have cartels that use people and that sell false promises and hope about what will happen when they get here. There are just a huge variety of reasons, in addition to the Biden administration's softer rhetoric about the issue that have brought so many people here. Well, I don't I mean, I don't know about the softer rhetoric. We just recorded a episode on our premium channel. We talked about Instagram and every other reel is a play on Kamala Harris going, don't come. When she said that speech, like, don't come. I think that they've harshened the rhetoric, but didn't harshen the process. And people communicate that back to their friends and family, and the coyotes exploit that. They say you can't get asylum if you cross illegally, but they don't arrest and deport people if they cross illegally, right? So I think it's a a kind of a mix of the two. The numbers are really where I try to ground myself and I try to think about what is the problem and what are we trying to do? I was reading The Economist. I don't know where they got the statistic. They didn't cite it, but they said... 160 million people would come to America 
if they could, like in some sort of global survey. 160 million people, if given the chance, would come to America for a better life. And I mean, when you say more people from places like Russia and China and India, let's just, I just want to put a few numbers on that because more is really not capturing the, like, the breadth of this. In 2021, 4,000 people came from Russia at the southern border. Last year was 43,000. It was 450 from China. Last year was 24,000. And you're exactly right. Like they're flying into places where they don't have visa requirements like Ecuador and then taking the same dangerous trek that so many people from Latin American and South America do. And so we're talking about a massive flow of humans. There's really great revisionist history that names like what you said, like when we were trying to stop people from working. I mean, first of all, that was an important point we could have asked. Why? Why were we doing that? They were going home. They were just coming. But it was, if you think about it, it was like during the 80s and 90s, unemployment wasn't low. You had all these changes with NAFTA. It kind of makes sense when you put it all in that perspective. But right now, with this flow of humanity, the, the New York Times did this really great graphic where you could kind of track it down. And you start with 3.1 million attempted crossings from October 22 to 9-23. 3.1 million attempted crossings. Now, 600,000 of those people just make it across undetected. They just slip right on in. And people are mad about that. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. When they say the border is unsecured and you say 600,000 people make it across undetected, that's what some people are talking about, and that's fair. That's fair, right? So then you have 2.5 million who have an encounter with border protection. That's 83% outside of ports of entry. In that very dangerous terrain, people die. Thousands of people die trying to cross those deserts and mountains and rivers because we said, well, we want to secure the border. So that was a place where we tried to do something. We want to secure the border. We're going to focus on ports of entry. Well, what do people do? They just went, I'm not going to go that way. I'll go another way. So you have 2.5 million encountering border agents outside those ports of entry. Now, for a while, they were being, you have a half a million under Title 42. We've allowed that to lapse. We've talked about that a lot on our premium channels and on the show. But 1.9 are processed under Title 8 of the immigration laws. Then you have almost 200,000 expedited removal, almost 200,000 that voluntarily depart. So you have 1.5 million new cases inside our immigration system. And over the course of the year, about 2,700 were granted relief towards permanent residency. So you start with 3.1 million attempted crossings and you end with 2,700 cases of relief. Now, those are from the crossings. You get a lot more cases moving through the system that have been in there for years. But I mean, that's just that's hard to wrap your head around. Right. And all this rhetoric and all this you can't I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around the, just the breadth of the border much less the amount of people, the different types of people trying to cross the border, and then all the paths they take once they cross. And that's just the southern border, Beth. What if they're flying in? What if they're coming from Canada? Like, it's just, it it, it boggles the mind, truly. So if I try to, like, break all of that apart, I say, step one, I'm so glad that people want to come here. I want to be a place people want to come. Yeah. Wouldn't the opposite be a terrible problem? Yes. Yes. I read a piece from the Cato Institute, which is kind of libertarian-leaning think tank. And they said, listen, other than tanking our economy, we are always going to be a place that people want to come. And so truly, the only solution to illegal immigration is a stronger legal immigration system. 
That's a libertarian think tank saying, if you want to deal with this problem truly, you have got to fix the legal side because we will always have people trying to get here as long as we are a free and prosperous nation. And I would like to stay a free and prosperous nation. So that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. The second thing is, in addition to people being upset, I think about the disorder of 600,000 people slipping in undetected, people staying forever, is the fact that asylum has become a workaround to a broken system. So lots of people, and, and this is where social media plays a factor too, right? Lots of people have learned to come and say, I have a credible fear of persecution in my home country. And their credible fear does not hold up under the definition of credible fear in our asylum laws. But if they say that, they can stay for a very long time because we have just a totally insufficient system for adjudicating those claims. And I think people are upset about that, and I don't think that they're wrong to be. I mean, I read that even doubling the number of judges wouldn't clear the backlog of those cases till 2032. It's a four-year average to get an asylum hearing. And it's totally inconsistent. There was like a Texas judge who denied 95% of asylum hearings and then a San Francisco judge that denied 1% of hearings. So like total stereotype, exactly what you would expect. You're talking about being inside these, just the asylum system for years, four years. And I think we have to increase those requirements. I think a lot of experts inside the immigration system say those requirements were written and designed for a different time. In this piece of the New York Times, the two experts were like, as heartbreaking as it is, we simply cannot take every refugee from every failed state. We cannot do that. And I think that's hard. That's hard to hear. What if it's a child? What if it's a woman? Like, it's hard to say we cannot take every refugee from every failed state because there are many of them. Are we going to admit every citizen of Haiti? Because that is a failed state right now. And I think that that is hard. And so limiting like sort of that humanitarian parole, which is sort of the second step inside of asylum, which we've decided some states like Venezuela or Nicaragua will give you humanitarian parole. But again, that's just a temporary. It's parole. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's just temporary. So I think raising those requirements of asylum seekers, that's a tough pill to swallow if you're on the left. But being a barrier to that and saying we're not even going to discuss that when we know we have this backlog is not moving the, the conversation forward. Not that I'm even giving the benefit of the doubt that the other side wants to have a conversation right now, because, again, we're we're talking about a pragmatic reality inside this political system. But I do think that that, you know, in this new era where we're not talking about men from Mexico coming over to work, we're talking about something very, very different including people coming all the way from Russia and, and China. And we have to talk about that. One of our listeners, Sergio, sent me a really good piece from the Migration Policy Institute that talked about how we've had this unspoken agreement in Congress, probably dating back to 9-11, when the southern border started to really be treated as a national security issue, not just as sort of an administrative or economic issue. And that agreement has been to just keep putting more money and more emphasis into law enforcement at the southern border, that we're just going to apprehend people there. And that's going to be our focus. And this policy institute says, like, that's one piece of the picture. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about adjudication. So you do the law enforcement, but then you have to figure out how do I know what this person's status is and what claims they might make and what rights they have? And then what do we do in the meantime? 
because there's always going to be some wait time for that process. So what's the situation in terms of education and medical care and shelter and work authorization? And then if we are going to remove people, how are we doing that? And where are they going? And how are they getting there? And if they have a right to be here, where are they going? And how are they getting there? And how are they going to integrate into those communities? And Congress has just left those questions to the executive branch. So you hear right now from a lot of Republicans, like President Biden has all the authority he needs. He doesn't need any more authority. And President Biden is saying, give me the authority and I will do more. Even that debate to me still seems focused on law enforcement at the southern border instead of the rest of those pieces that would actually get to what I think most Americans are unhappy with. Yeah, I think the law enforcement discussion is difficult because it's not invented. Everyone is concerned about the flow of fentanyl over the southern border. You know, it's the number one source of drug overdoses. People are dying. And that is real and concerning. But like, Just ask yourself in the most cynical way, do you think that drug cartels are sending fentanyl on the backs of people crossing the Rio Grande and risking their very valuable product in like barbed wire? Does that sound like a smart business decision to you? Do you not think that they probably have more established routes? I was very encouraged that the Biden administration sat down with China to discuss the chemicals that flow to Mexico to make the fentanyl to begin with. You want to talk about law enforcement, and I think that is a completely valid concern. We are not talking about barbed wire on the Rio Grande. That's not where the fentanyl is coming from, friends. Let's talk about this in a real way. And I think with regards to the like, what happens once they come, there was a moment, a very small moment, Beth, when I was like, dang, this busing in the most sort of like politically pragmatic way worked. It said, what are we supposed to do with all these people? If we're at this Texas border town and our population doubles in a week, what would you have us do? So if you want to be a sanctuary, be a sanctuary. We'll bring them right to your doorstep. I don't know if it was fair and it was obviously like a stunt in a lot of ways, but it did create movement. It created energy. It said, do you see the struggle? Do you see that we have to do something with this flow of people across the southern border? I think the glimmer was when the bipartisan deal was coming together. And I thought, okay, so this worked. We forced. We being Greg Abbott in Texas and Florida forced the hands of these blue state mayors and said, you made them a very motivated constituency within the Democratic Party to say something must be done. And then to kill it, to just follow Donald Trump down the hole to say, no, no, we want to fight about this during the election. It just it just removed all of that in like the most heartbreaking and just depressing, cynical way to say like, We spent, you know, $75 million as the state of Texas. We moved all these people into these cities. We strained resources. We put people at risk to prove our point. But we don't really want a solution. That's not what we mean. It's just depressing. That's the problem with this entire issue. You're never just talking about one thing. If we want to solve the problem of fentanyl, I agree with you. I think that's a problem. I think it's an emergency. I think it requires a serious law enforcement response, as well as a diplomatic one. I think those pieces are moving right now. That is a different problem than 14,000 people in Eagle Pass, Texas. That's a different problem. The problem of what happens when people get here, I think the buses were done in a way that was incredibly harmful to our sense of national unity. Had it been done with any coordination I think it would have been a pretty decent idea. 
Like in my mind, if we could come up with a system where the federal government coordinates immigration hubs, almost in the style of like airline hubs, where you're, you're saying to people, who are you connected to here? Where do you ultimately need to go? How can we get you there? And then in those same places as the transportation hubs, you have courts sitting all over the United States. Okay, once you get there, first person you're going to meet is the caseworker for your immigration matter. And these are the dates. And this is the person who vouches for you attending these court dates. And we're going to keep it moving. I don't know. I think there was the beginning of a good idea in the busing. It's just been done in a way that's cruel because you're taking people from Venezuela and dropping them in Chicago in the harsh winter with no one prepared for them to come. I mean, that that's not okay. But certainly moving people out of Texas is okay and should happen. I think the other difficult part of this is there is this very dated understanding of what that strain looks like when people come, where I would have conversations with people where I'd say like, well, I mean, we need more people to work. And they'd be like, no, we don't. You know, like there's this ingrained idea that like any immigration takes American jobs. The narrative that was built that immigration is a threat to you and your job and your work is like set in concrete, even though opposite friends opposite. When we are talking about our aging population and the fact that we have very low unemployment, we want more people to come here. In that same New York Times piece, they said, maintaining our historical population growth of 1% would suggest admitting nearly 4 million individuals a year. So if we just want to stay the same, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges truly and immigration is almost a manifestation. I know we're talking about immigration as this, this underlying problem where all these different things manifest. But I think if you dig even deeper below that, it's a manifestation of these massive demographic changes happening across the globe. Like Latin America has an aging population because their young people are immigrating for a lot of other reasons. But like that demographic idea that like, hey, do you know that we don't have enough people in the United States to maintain our processes and systems and industries? Like, I think the answer is no, they don't. People don't know that. They just know that more people is a threat. It's a threat to our resources. It's a threat to our jobs. And when you're in that in that orientation to threat, you cannot see clearly. You cannot think clearly. And look, immigration isn't an immediate solution to that because we tell people they can't work once they get here, which is stupid. <laughs> and you got to put those on the board, too, as separate problems, right? What's going on with our economy? What's going on with our labor market? What's going on with our birth rate? All of those things go on the board. You have to put conflict. How many people from Afghanistan are we going to admit? How many people from Ukraine are we going to admit? I think this is one of the challenges of Congress doing good immigration legislation because there there does always have to be an element of flexibility, what's going on in the world. But I think that 4 million number is really helpful because probably part of what we need is for Congress to say to the executive branch, this is the total number that we feel we can admit every year in the United States. Now let's divide that up through various channels, right? To just say to people, there's a rationale for this. Hello, America. We've decided that this is the beneficial point for us. We are doing this in a selfish way. Okay, and now let's think about what we do next. 
Yeah, I mean, I, when I read that number, I was like, okay, well, just put a number on it. But the problem is the people in Congress are no one or everyone. Truly, that's the debate. The debate is absolutely yeah. let in no one or absolutely let in everyone. And that's not getting us anywhere. And I think Americans can kind of put themselves in that camp. I don't think it's just Congress that orients itself in that way. I think of a, a lot of Americans, the answer is everyone or no one. Well, that's not a process. That's not helpful. That's not going to move this conversation forward. Like, I, I really, truly, like, I read that and I thought, I'm going to say that every time immigration comes up in my life. Did you know that we need to admit 4 million people a year to maintain our historical population growth? And do you know what has fueled America hegemony around the world besides our very excellent geography? Population growth. So, like, unless you want to have no one to pay your Social Security, then you better get comfortable with admitting a lot of people to the United States. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pansy. So back to that Migration Policy Institute piece, which I thought was so good. It says these are the things that you have to do. You have to figure out what you're trying to accomplish. Be precise about the problem. And they say right now the problem is control, not security. And that sounds right to me. Yeah. I think there are, of course, some security issues at the border. I think there always will be. But mostly the problem is control. But can I stop you? Because I think articulating there always will be is important. There always will be. And like walk the border. (laughs) just You can't because some of it's in water. So stop acting like we can secure the border. It is too big and it is too complex to tightly control in the way you have in your mind, like a moat around a castle. That ain't ever going to work, y'all. Just let it go. They also say Congress has to get involved. The executive branch has been going this alone for decades. It's not working. Congress getting involved would also help us figure out in the executive branch who's doing what. I think we've learned pretty decisively that we don't want the Department of Homeland Security doing social work at the border. Absolutely not. But someone needs to be doing social work. Yeah. And some children have still not found their families from the separation during the Trump presidency. So, yes, I think that's a bad idea. Agreed. So we need some focus for these agencies, but also with real cooperation and partnership among those agencies. In addition to our executive branch not being able to do this alone, the United States cannot do it alone. And we see right now the Biden administration has been working with Mexico to strengthen Mexico's enforcement of its immigration laws. And in January, the Mexican law enforcement efforts decreased migration to the southern border by 50 percent. It's come up a little bit since then, but it is still lower than it was in December just because of that cooperation between our two countries. Well, this part really frustrates me because to have this isolationist orientation to say we want to secure that we don't want to let anyone in. Oh, and by the way, we want to stop all foreign aid. I mean, our foreign aid has dropped to 0.2 percent of our gross domestic product. 0.2 percent. What do you think will happen if you stop giving aid to Ukraine and Russia rolls in on a tank? You think they're all going to stay there? If we turn our backs on the world and say America is for Americans only and we're going to put up a big old fence like and we just let everybody go. I mean, it's just it's such a good use of money. You want to spend to secure the border. You have to send it to other countries. I know that is in a way paradoxical. But if you think about it for like two hot minutes, it's really not. And to continue to cut foreign aid while crowing about immigration and the risk of refugees and migrants flowing across the border is maddening. I have to give Vice President Harris a lot of credit here, though, because she has been pretty creative at getting the private sector involved in that foreign aid process in Central and Latin America. So she has facilitated a number of companies going into these countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and really investing there. Because part of what happens is if your most industrious, bright people leave those countries to come to the United States, 
Mm-hmm. The brain drain becomes part of the crisis in the country yep. as well, right? So you need people to not only get foreign aid from the United States government in the form of training them to do better security, better law enforcement, better education, but you do need the private sector there to say there are jobs here for you. There's a career path here for you. That is very long-term work, right? That will not bear fruit during this administration or the next. But it is important and good work. And I I think that her office doesn't get enough credit for how hard they're working that problem without support. Well, I mean, it's just with good faith. And when you look at some of the solutions coming from Texas, I don't think there's solutions in good faith. That concertina wire hasn't dropped the flow coming through Eagle Pass. That's, That's not decreased the flow of people trying to get through. It's just cruel. It's just cruel. People have died. I mean, I read a an interview with a couple that owns land. Their land is there. And they were thrilled by the idea. And they're like, now all we have is small girls wandering unattended and bodies on the banks of our property. So it's like it is very difficult to take any of this seriously when it so often feels to quote a piece I didn't even really like at the time, which is the cruelty is the point. That's what it feels like. It just feels like we'll be mean enough. We'll take your children away or we'll let you die on the banks of the Rio Grande and then people won't come. And like just beyond the ethics of that, it's not actually working. It's not actually working. Your cruelty is not a solution. It's not working. If you don't believe the dangerousness of the wire, you should look at a picture of the bank of the Rio Grande. There are so many places where It is so steep and slippery. So someone who gets to that wire has already crossed into the United States because, again, some of the borders in the water. So they're already in the United States. They already have the right to apply for asylum. They are already under U.S. law treated as an applicant for admission. But then they go up this slope and there's the wire. And the only thing that's going to happen is that you slip back down into the river and get carried away by its currents. So... I understand that people like me have lost some credibility on this issue because I have been so emotional about it and because the way I responded to the Trump administration. I am being very precise about that particular problem. I do think there's been sloppy reporting about the Supreme Court and the concertina wire. So I keep seeing from Kentuckians, like I follow a lot of Kentucky legislators on X. And that's about all my feed is anymore. It seems to be the best way that I can keep in touch with Frankfurt. So many of them like are talking about how Governor Bashir ought to stand with Texas and defy the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hasn't told anybody to do anything. Texas put up the wire. Sometimes Border Patrol agents cut it because they needed to cut it to help people or to otherwise do their job. Sometimes they cut it to arrest people, right? This is kind of a same team situation. But they cut it. And Texas takes them to court and says the federal government is trespassing on our property by cutting this wire. And that gets all the way to the Supreme Court. The Fifth Circuit tells the federal government, you have to stop cutting the wire. All the Supreme Court says is, no, they don't. And it goes back down to the lower court for an actual trial. But the Supreme Court did not say Texas can't continue to put the wire up. The Supreme Court did not say that Texas can't fix the wire that's been cut. Like, all they said is, like, status quo continues. Texas does what it's doing. Border Patrol responds as it responds. 
And the Border Patrol can cut Texas's wire just like it can cut a fence of a private property owner within 25 miles of the border if that's what they need to do. I feel like when we get into this arena where we're talking about defying court orders and Texas declaring war, this is dangerous territory. So everybody being really precise about what's happening is important. Yeah, but Governor Abbott's not going to be precise. Like, he wants that. He wants that tenor in the argument. He wants that civil war language. That is what they are fueling the base of the party with right now. Is this like a civil war is coming? Be prepared to fight it. Like, again, because they lost one of their primary emotional issues. Like, because I just want to be clear, there's not just one side here being emotional. Um, They lost their emotional motivation and issue with abortion when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And they know it. And they know it. And so they need to fuel that fire of fear that motivates their base and says, you are in danger. And the only way to secure yourself and your family in this country is to vote for us, to fight for us, to do whatever we tell you to do, because there is danger, danger, danger. It's like that orientation to being prey. I I listened to Hidden Brain's new series, Us 2.0, and they talked about, like, we evolved as prey, not predators. And so it is very easy to push a human's buttons and say, you're in danger, you're prey, you're afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And it's very motivating. And they know that. And that is exactly what Governor Abbott is doing. Like, I've just stopped believing that he actually wants to solve this. I've stopped believing that he cares about these border towns taxed to the utmost of their capacity. I think that he has found a political issue that is easy to manipulate, that is easy to look like a tough guy. You know, we're reading a book that really talks about foreign policy and using foreign policy, even when it's an unpopular position, to make yourself seem like a good leader as a presidential candidate. And I think like this, this strength orientation, this you're in danger, you're prey, I'm the strength, I'm the I'm the tough guy, I'm the strong guy who will protect you, is just the bread and butter of MAGA right now. And he is like at the center of that. It is hard to believe that anyone is in solution mode when what we see is this group, Chris Murphy, James Lankford, Kirsten Sinema, so a Democrat, a Republican, and an independent in the Senate, who have been for months working on what they wanted to be a bipartisan framework on immigration that would tackle this problem in the law enforcement sense, but also beyond it working to speed up asylum. Some of the solutions we've discussed, absolutely. And they have been working and working on this. And Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, has said, dead on arrival. Mitch McConnell has now said, we can't do anything that undermines Trump and Trump doesn't want this. And Trump is out around the country actively campaigning against this. So it's like, it's an emergency from Republicans, but it's an emergency that we definitely don't want to do anything about until January of 2025. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to take that seriously. Yeah, because I don't think they're serious about solving it. I think that's why you can't take it seriously, because they're not serious. We also have an effort to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. The Homeland Security Committee voted on party lines to recommend two articles of impeachment, one for refusing to comply with federal immigration laws and one for breach of the public trust because he has said to Congress that the border is secure. Again, I think we need to focus on that distinction. Like, it might be secure and still disorderly, right? It depends on what we're talking about. 
Neither of those have any precedent as a high crime or misdemeanor, which is the constitutional standard for impeachment. And impeaching cabinet officials is something that we don't really do. The last time it was attempted was in 1876 when a defense secretary was accused of taking kickbacks in government contracts. But like this, this is just not a path forward, right? Either you want to solve this problem or you want to just blame people for not solving it. And I think we're squarely in the blame category. Well, and I think what's frustrating is that their rhetoric is making more impact. The idea that a border wall is rising in popularity among Democrats? What? I mean, I think it's because it's such a concrete thing that people can understand. That, like, they they get it, they hear it. It sounds like a solution, maybe not a great one, but it's better than nothing. And because this is such a complicated system, like, we're going to have to figure out a way to talk about this that doesn't require a degree in administrative law so that people get, like, this is an issue and we care about it and we're going to pay attention to it. And we are paying attention to it. That has impact because the wall is dumb, but people are busy. And so it connected. And that needs to be like an accepted political reality so that there is something to answer. Like I, like I said, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to start saying in my life. Did you know that we need to admit four million people a year in order to maintain our historical population growth? Like I just need something to connect. I think that my hook like that is this piece from the Cato Institute. Alex Narasta will put it in the show notes. To me, this is the money line. Other than crashing the economy, expanding legal immigration is the only reliable way to massively reduce illegal immigration without committing crimes against humanity. And I think that that's correct. And look, we have some success under this administration. First of all, President Biden has not done nothing around immigration. Mm -hmm. He's taken 535 executive actions on immigration over three years. Trump took 472 during his entire presidency. So he has not been sitting still. The parole initiative to allow Americans to sponsor Ukrainians, Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans for temporary residence, where you can live in the United States for at least two years, that gets people legally flying here instead of making dangerous journeys. It's not perfect. We need more resources for processing those folks. But there is a foundation to build on there. And that is the kind of system where you could say, here's the cap. This is the total number of these that we're doing. And here's why we picked that number, America, because it's the number of people our labor market needs. I think that's a really positive direction to go. Yeah, I was really encouraged in particular by the app, but I I was reading this book called Recoding America, where it's like, we need people to see technology as a part of the government, not just as this like tool, like you don't get to, you know, the sort of status position in the government is setting policy. Like that's what, that's what. If you're going to work in government, you want to be high up setting the policy. And we don't give enough status to what flows after that. And that is what we desperately need inside the immigration system. We don't need more people up at the top giving us ideas. We need really smart, thoughtful people involved in the process of instituting that policy. And that's true for a lot of places in government, but I think it's particularly true of immigration. Um and I think you see that here. Like, it's just, it's so 
big, even if even if the clouds broke open and the angels sang and Congress decided, no, you know, we're going really, we're going to go to work, we're going to do our jobs, and we're going to pass this massive immigration bill. Much like the infrastructure bill, there has to be an army of very smart, dedicated people saying, this is this is the purpose I'm looking for, to go out and institute this policy and figure out the problems and figure out the fact that the app is great, but these are the issues and this is the software coding needed to fix it. Like we need that flow afterwards. I think that's true of a lot of places in American life. And I think this is one of them. And this is also a place where we need federal coordination with the states. Like federalism is implicated in immigration in every way and not just in the strained way that Governor Abbott is pushing that tension into the system. But we absolutely have to have coordination between the federal government and state and local officials all over the country. We have listeners who every day are that army of smart people working charitably and in social services organizations to try to alleviate suffering around the southern border. And that will always be needed, too. I think that's another mindset. There will always be some security issues at the borders. There will always be moments of disorder. There will always be poverty and exploitation. We're not going to fix this, right? But there are also a lot of really good ideas about how it can be much, much better than it is. So we'll continue to follow those ideas here. And if you are so inclined to mention to your senator that you would like to see that bipartisan legislation taken up on the floor. We encourage you to do that. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We always end our show talking about something outside of politics. Sarah, when you said the phrase scruffy hospitality to me, just as an idea of a thing to talk about, I was immediately in. I wanted to learn more. I'm very into this idea. So tell us what scruffy hospitality is. Well, I read it in the Today Show email, which is just really a grab bag. Let me tell you guys, it'll just be like (laughs) this smash shooting happened and also scruffy hospitality. But it really caught my eye because I have been articulating this for years. I just didn't have a cute name for it. And so has the guy that the article is based around. It's Reverend Jack King. He's an Anglican priest. And he wrote this piece like 10 years ago about the gap between our day-to-day home and the presentable, acceptable for hospitality version and sort of shrinking that gap, which is something I feel like I even said it on The Nuance Life or somewhere, which is the reason my husband and I host semi-often and have friends over for dinner and do this is because what I try to do is lower my expectations a little bit for what I want my house to look like when people come over. For example, my children's clean rooms are not spotless because my children are upstairs and I don't go upstairs that often <laughs> because I don't like the states they keep their rooms in, so I just avoid them. But I don't worry about that, right? If there's if their dirty clothes are on the floor when somebody comes over, who cares? They're not eating in my kid's room. And then I try to heighten the expectations around what my house is like day to day. My countertops are clear. My floors are clean. My bathrooms are clean. Not all of them, but the ones that a guest would use. I try to keep those clean all the time, every day. I try to keep things picked up is what I would describe it. So that that gap is not huge. Because if the gap is huge, you won't have people over. Because you'll be like, oh, i got to pick up this. i got to do this. i got to blah, 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 blah. And then you won't do it. So I love that this thing I've kind of instituted in my life, got this cute name, and is getting some attention. We also host often. One of the best things we've done this year, we bought a ton of Target made-for-college plates, like just plastic. They're just light gray and light pink plastic plates and bowls, and they are so easy to run through the dishwasher. And then you, they're just so light, you just grab all of them at one time and put them back in the Like, it's it's so easy to clean up when you have something like that, and it makes me feel better than using paper plates, but it's not the work of using nicer dishes. 
So kind of getting into that mindset that I don't have to do my fanciest serving of anyone while they're here. I don't have to get the china out. I don't have to even get my glass plates out. I can just serve people. We can have a good time. It can be super casual. And then I can make the cleanup pretty easy on myself. Yeah, I think that's key. I think having some easy meals or just ordering takeout, who cares? Yeah. Like, and also I think when you keep your house a little bit cleaner than maybe you would if nobody ever came over, it also clears up mental space and sort of reduces your stress. So you have that margin, that capacity to host people. I think that's what it does for me. Clutter stresses me out. So when the clutter is not around, when my husband was like, well, do you want to have somebody over tonight? I can say yes, because I don't feel like I have to go clear the clutter. You know what I mean? And I think once you get in the habit of keeping it that way, you build the, the smaller daily habits that don't feel like a big production. Because that's the small, you know, like I was thinking about this with my laundry. Um, because my husband has bought this massive laundry basket. And guess what? It's just made his laundry procrastination worse. Not surprising. I keep super lightweight mesh pop-up laundry hampers, right? I do like one small load of laundry. The only thing I fold is t-shirts. Everything else is just kind of thrown in a drawer. I mean, I can, I can do my laundry and put it away inside like five minutes or less. And like, that's by design because that makes me more likely to do it and keep it out of the way. And I think you think if I do it more often, that's harder, but it's not because you're doing it in a way that is less stressful and involves less effort than these like big, when I see people's couches full of laundry, it stresses me all the way out. You know, like I don't fold my kids laundry. They should throw their t-shirts in a drawer and then they pull them out and wear them. Who cares? You know, like it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to them. But like finding those little points where I can just make those everyday tasks easier and quicker so that they can get done so that then the house is in a place that we can have people over. I think the biggest thing about this whole idea is just deciding that it's important to you to have people over. Once you get in the habit of having people over, it gets easier and easier. You figure out, this is how I like to do the drinks. This is what I like to serve. This is where I like to put things. But you have to just decide, I want to be a person who hosts because I want to be with people. And honestly, there are just not a lot of people who like to host. You know what I mean? In so many places, if you are going to gather, it's going to be you. You just have to raise your hand and say, I'm going to be the person. We had such a fun party here. I won't get into all the reasons why, but basically we were playing a game on New Year's. My neighbor said something hilarious about the grocery store. So we decide for his 40th birthday in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a grocery store themed party for him. It was the easiest thing I have ever done because I went to the deli and bought all the things because it was on theme, right? I made nothing because that was kind of the the gist of the whole deal. I got some balloons. I made a little Price is Right Google Slides game. We guessed the prices of all kinds of things at Kroger. It was super fun and so easy. And everybody actually, it was kind of like a treat to have really nice deli sandwiches and really nice deli condiments to go with it. And I think once you just get in your mind like, it's okay. I'm not proving anything to anyone when I host. We're just gathering and we're trying to make it memorable and fun and easy. I don't know. I It enriches my life so much to kind of always be planning the next thing. It's kind of a way that my brain rests. Like, what are we doing next and, and how can that be fun? Well, I think I also started hosting more when I decided it was for the experience and not for the photos. 
Because there was yeah. a time there in the early aughts that it was for the photos. We were all wrapping water bottles. Why? Because that improves someone's experience of a party? No, <laughs> it just makes a cute picture. And so when I let go of that and just thought like, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, one of our favorite things we do every year is my holiday open house. I don't have great pictures from that. Who cares? You know, um, because that's not the point. The point is not a beautiful table. The point is that we gather around. Not that I don't love a beautiful table. I do. But I think once I like sort of let go of that, because I think party planning, especially if you're getting ideas from the Internet, it can, can it's like the Martha Stewartization of parties, which is you should have these beautiful spreads and these beautiful photo layouts of the party. But that's really not the point. I mean, if it is, it's a point for you, fine, but it's not the point for me. I have to remind myself to take pictures even when we get together now because that it's not what it's about. I try to take some pictures just because I don't want to be a person who only has photos of my kids. And I can get in that space, too, where I like it's like our gathering is not worthy of a place in my camera roll. So I kind of have the opposite problem. But I have fully released the idea that it always needs to be pretty or perfect because it just needs to be. Well, thank you all so much for being here with us. I hope that you feel a sense of wonderful, cozy scruffy lived in hospitality around this podcast we will be back in your ears on tuesday for a new episode and until then have the best weekend available to you Pantu politics is produced by studio d podcast production Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Katherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, The Pettins, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Vallelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago, Becca Dorval, Christina Quartararo, Shannon Frawley, Jessica Whitehead, Samantha Chalmers, The Adair family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.